Two of the hardest words, I think, to hear are the words, she died, or he died. Those are hard words to hear. Many of you were stunned when you saw Matthew Perry, uh, just a year older than me, 54 years old, he died. Many of you have watched him as Chandler on Friends, or he was such a, a, a great actor. When they got together for his memorial, these were the words they kept saying. His loss is an unfathomable loss. Many people were asking, how did he die? Why did he die? And he just wrote a book, being very open about a lot of his addictions. But when we think, whether it's celebrities that die or people in our own lives, I know most of my life as a nurse, I've had to accompany a doctor into a room and have the doctor look at a family and say the words, he died. It's as though the air gets sucked out of the room. The look on the face is never, it never changes. It's always a look of bewilderment, confusion. I don't care how old or how young. Those words, he died. Now, we live in a weird culture. America pushes death off to the side. When you eat a chicken McNugget, you don't exactly have any connection to the fact that that chicken lived somewhere. We're kind of disconnected from killing and death with food. And with the advent of hospitals, unless you're someone like me in the medical field, sick and dying people get pushed away. You don't have even a room in the home, which years ago would have been a parlor for your dead relative. Most young men in most cultures have dug a grave for someone that they knew. Most churches, you walk out and you see your loved ones. Saying the words, he died, are some of the hardest words for our culture to hear. The title today is simply summing up John 19. Why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus die? Jesus died so that we would live. We know that. But let me say before we step into this text, if you don't understand and believe that this happened, Jesus died, you'll spend the rest of your life trying to make life happen. This is important. So how are we going to get through all of this? We're hearing him say things. We're watching things. Here's how we're going to walk through it. Jesus died so you can live because of, first of all, the signs. There are all sorts of signs. Second of all, the sayings. Jesus says things from the cross. And lastly, we're going to talk about some secrets. The last part's very short. The first part's a little longer because there are so many signs that we need to slow down and think about that are inside of the, these words, he died. So where are we going? I don't want to lose any of you. John wrote this so that we wouldn't doubt, but that we would believe. Jesus died so that we can live because of the signs, because of the sayings, and at the end there's some secrets. So first of all, he died so that you can live because of the signs. There's four of them. There's a cross. When we started our church plant, this was one of the first things that we uh, were gifted. 
The cross we're going to look at. There's a skull. That's another sign. There's the scriptures. Over and over, there's these predictions. Those are signs. And lastly, there's actually a sign. It's called the titulus. It was put up on the cross. Let's talk about these. Let's look at the cross. Verse 17, it says, And he went out bearing his own cross. Many of you have seen a picture of what it would have looked like back then. What you would do to someone who was a criminal and they were going to get crucified, they'd carry this cross beam. They'd put it up. Some people think that you kind of had it this direction. Others think you were tied this way. But you had to carry this thing called the patibulum. And let's just slow down and think about this symbol, which has always been central to the Christian story. It's strange. Planted like a scarecrow in the center of our religion is a cross. I know some of the people that I work with wear them as earrings. I know people decorate their walls. It's kind of strange, though, because the cross is a Roman torture device they used to terrorize their enemies. You would walk with this cross always along a main road. If you lived in Indian land, you'd be walking it down Johnston Road. Why? Because you were going to be shamed. It was pure shame. No poise. This picture of Jesus, remember God. It's like looking at God with a black eye and a split lip. The cross is a symbol that was hideously painful and shameful. It was ugly. It was all shrieking and writhing. Jesus, we're told, was crucified on his cross from 9 a.m., to 3 p.m., hour after hour, hanging like dead weight from spikes. His love was so fierce that he let himself be crossed. The cross for Christians became shorthand as a sign for sacrifice. You sacrifice when you give up something you value for something of greater value. Oh, when we look at this cross. This is why Paul, he was a a rabbi. He was very, very knowledgeable of legal issues. He was a very good tent maker with his hands. He summed up Christianity in 1 Corinthians with these words. Paul, I decided to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus died sacrificing giving up something you love for something you love more. I hope you leave today realizing that Jesus died because he loves you. He wants you. So that sign of the cross has a bit of a deeper significance. And let me tell you why. The word cross, remember, is the word staros in Greek. But when you read the book of Acts, that word is dropped. The word that is used for cross is an interesting word. It's the word tree. Now zoom out, those of you that are new Christians or those of you that have been doing this a long time. Our story starts with a tree. Don't miss the importance of this symbol. Adam sinned at that tree. It was an act of sedition. It was an act of utter mistrust and pushing against the God who loved him and created him. So the book of Acts, it always uses this word tree. Acts 13, 29, for example. They took him down from the tree 
and laid him in the tomb. So our first sign, why did Jesus die? There's all these signs. He died because right there at that sin at the first tree, he was going to be put upon a tree to put right what sin put wrong between sinners and God. Let's move to the next one, a skull, a skull. 1917, the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. Golgotha is the Aramaic word, but many of you sing songs, especially if you're older, you sing songs about Calvary. Why? Because in Latin, the word for skull is calvaria. I hope that changes the way you sing. You sing about skulls. Some people think the hill that he died on was shaped like a skull. We really don't know. What we do know, though, is one of the earliest pastors had a tradition, and we don't know if it's true. The tradition was that Adam, this is where Adam's skull was buried. But we don't know. The Bible does not tell us that. But what we know is this, because Adam substituted himself for God, Jesus is now going to come and substitute himself for not just that first Adam's sin, but all of us who are infested and inherit the sin of Adam. Okay, we've seen two incredible signs. Why did Jesus die? We have this wonderful sign that we see of the skull, of the cross. Let's now look at some scriptures. And I don't want to lose any of you here because you think, okay, a sermon, there's so much coming at me. Don't miss this. If I were to tell you right now that there was a single scripture like a stream, we sang a song about streams of mercy never ceasing. If I were to tell you one scripture that predicted Jesus, it'd be kind of cool. But it's stream after stream after stream that makes a raging river so that if you say, I don't know if Jesus' death really means anything and I can trust it, Blaise Pascal, one of my favorite things he wrote, he wrote a lot of little sayings when he was contemplating God and he wasn't doing all of his math. He was a very smart guy. He said, if there was just one person that could predict the coming of Jesus in spe in, with specifics, it would be of infinite value. Like, my goodness. But if there were many, which there are, it would just make you slow down and go, I got to take this seriously. So let's dive in. What are these scriptures? Scriptures about thieves, clothing, unbroken legs of all things, and a pierced side. Let's look at the thieves. Verse 18. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side. Now frame this. Y'all have, if I walked into your house, you have picture frames. Why? Because you can't look at everything. You frame your family, you frame your marriage. Frame our Lord hanging between two thieves. It focuses our gaze. Christ? Between two crooks? Don't miss this. And yet, it was predicted. Psalm 22 says, a company of evildoers encircles me. How in the world would a guy writing a song so many years before the coming of Jesus know such a thing? It's kind of interesting. But what about the clothing? 
Look at verse 23. The soldiers had crucified Jesus. They took his tunic. Verse 24, they said to each other, let's not tear that tunic. Let's cast lots for it to see whose it's going to be. Verse 24, though, this wasn't just some arbitrary thing. It was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's also from Psalm 22. But let's slow down, not just intellectually thinking, oh, how neat that is. Let's slow down and think about Jesus hanging on that tree. The shame. Much of our artwork shows him wearing something. Our Lord most likely hung there, fully naked. The shame. His clothing was removed. He hung there naked. Here he is, Jesus Christ, the Holy Son of God, hanging there. Let this sink in. And where's he looking? He's looking down at the guys that just put him on the tree. And what are they doing? Hey, don't, don't rip that piece of cloth. He is torn, ripped. And they care more about a piece of cloth. But imagine you hanging there watching men gamble away your clothes. You know what they're saying? You're as good as dead. We're going to take your clothes because you ain't going to need them anymore. Oh, the shame. But as Jesus hung there, deeper than the horror of this moment, there was hope because one of those guys rolled his dice in the inner tunic. I mean, how cool that would that have been? If you, if you could meet Jesus and Jesus is like, hey, I got some extra clothes. I wear an inner tunic. I'm going to give it to you. Man, I wear that thing every day. One of those crucifying soldiers walked away that day with clothing that was not his own. Christ's executioner walked away wearing a gracious garment he never bought. Deeper than the horror is hope for all of us. I love the story of Catherine Parr. Do you know her? First of all, the fact that she was the last wife of Henry VIII, she just has an amazing story. She becomes a Christian. She was a Catholic, and Catholics have a lot of good, but one of the things the Catholics didn't do real well at that time is they said, your work makes you acceptable. And she says, I'm no longer going to believe that. She said, it's the work of Jesus dying and giving me his righteousness. And she wrote this beautiful statement. Oh, I love it. She said, I feel myself to come, as it were, in a new garment before God. And now by his mercy to be taken just and righteous, for this is the life everlasting. By this assurance, I feel the remission of my sins. This is what makes me bold. This is what comforts me. And listen to this. This is that quenches all despair. Don't miss this metaphor. I mean, we're talking about clothes. Jesus really wore an inner tunic. There were really four guys going, hey, don't rip that one because that's a nice one. They walked away that day with that item, which they probably wore the rest of their life. But we're hearing from one of our sisters in the faith saying, when I learned that Jesus can clothe me with his good, that quenches any despair I will ever have. Let's look at the unbroken bones. Once again, a little stream's not a big deal, but you put a stream with a stream with a stream, the river starts to rage. Unbroken bones, another sign. Look at verse 31. It's the day of preparation. 
The soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. Historical records tell us that this gruesome act of crucifixion could last anywhere from a couple of hours up to usually eight days. You hung on the public road for all to see day after day after day. But see, a special day for the Jews was going to happen, and they don't want to deal with three crooks hanging up on the cross. They got to get down. So how do you help a person who's going to hang there in agonizing uh, pain? Well, if you break their legs, you will help them suffocate to death a little bit quicker. I know it's gruesome, but this is the story John tells. Jesus suffered six horrific hours on that cross. Three of them were in total darkness. Verse 33, when they came to Jesus and saw he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. Why? Look at verse 36. It took place so the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. This is amazing. Here is another song, Psalm 3420. But there's a deeper sign. Some of you know the story of the Passover lamb. Exodus 12 tells us that the Passover lamb, which was killed, must be eaten inside the house. Do not break any of its bones. Why did Jesus die? And the last sign, the pierced side, the last scripture, verse 34. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear just to make sure he was dead. And there came out blood and water. That comes from the book of Zechariah. I doubt most of you here, including me, have even read that book in a long time. Now, it'd be amazing enough to see a skull, all these scriptures, this symbol, but there's actually a sign in this story. Verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. What did it read? Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. So here's an image of what it may have looked like. See, criminals had to usually wear a sign around their neck when they were walking with that crossbar. They would wear around their neck a sign which would basically say, this seditious criminal, take warning with that around their sign. Now, for Jesus, it was fastened on a cross. In that time, many of you know, the common language that everybody spoke, if you were a Jew, was Aramaic. Romans spoke Latin, and the Greeks, universal language, kind of like us today, the Greek language was like the universal language. So Pilate said, we're going to put it in all three languages. And he intended it as an anti-Semitic joke. Okay, he's the Jew king, Soon, to he, soon he's going to be the dead Jew king. This is your king. Look at my sign because the sign is laughing at this claim. He's more like an insect pinned up by my power. He wants the widest possible awareness of the announcement of why he thought Jesus was crucified. This guy thinks he's a king, not against Rome. Well, the chief priests come over because they don't want this sign to be misinterpreted. And they're like, oh, slow down. Don't write king of the Jews. Just say he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate looks and says, oh no, what I have written, I have written. So the two hardest words for us to hear are often, he died. Why did Jesus die? How did Jesus die? Well, Jesus died so we can live 
And if you don't believe it, look at the signs. But second of all, because some of you, you get excited and you trust because you see things. Others of you, though, need to hear it. And I like you types. You don't always trust your eyes. You need to hear it. So John's going to give us some things that Jesus said. Three sayings. Jesus will say something about family. He'll say something about thirst. And he'll say something about it being finished. His first saying had to do with seeing others as family. Look at verse 26. Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved. We think that was John standing nearby. And he says to his mother, woman, behold your son. We would hear it this way. Mom, look at your son. Behold just meant look. Then he said to the disciple, look, your mom. It's such an interesting word, the word look. It means look at the individual and fully recognize what's right in front of you, who's right in front of you. Mary and John see Jesus seeing them. There's not a person in this room that doesn't hunger to be seen. When I went to work this week, I just had my head down, I was doing all my tasks, and it dawned on me, when's the last time I've looked into the eyes of my nursing team or the eyes of the patients I visit? And it was weird. I was like, Lord, your son's on the cross, and he's looking and recognizing, Mom, John, I know our world says, oh, we feel things. Jesus was feeling some things on this cross, but he was so other-centered that he saw those that he loved. As I walked from nurse to nurse this week, I just sort of forced myself to look a little longer in their eyes. I had things to do. I always felt behind. But it was a different end of my day to see people. Oh, there's Jesus. Mary and John see Jesus seeing them. You know, Jesus sees you. Jesus sees you. You. He recognizes you. Why did Jesus die? Because he saw planning with his father before the foundation of anything that he was going to come and die for you. 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 He's experiencing excruciating pain, but he decides, I will be other-centered. I will focus on others. He sees before he speaks. He sees Mary, his mom. He sees John. Do you see people? See, if we experience this amazing seeing of Jesus, what's it do for you in your life? Do you see your neighbors? Do you see the invisibles at your workplace? Now, I know we all have roadblocks to seeing people. For me, it's tasks over people often. Or I get preoccupied with a problem. I don't like to be interrupted with my agenda. Elaine always sends out to our kids uh, a little quote she reads often during her devotions. And I want to put this up from Amy Carmichael. Amy Carmichael, we're doing all this mission in India. If you don't know her story, please read it. She goes to India, but I love her honesty. Amy Carmichael says in the midst of mission and loving people, if stupid people fret me and little ruffles set me on edge, if I make much of the trifles of life, 
then I know nothing of Calvary love. She was saying that it's not exactly so glamorous being a missionary. It's just like you and me. You're going to have people, you're going, why do these stupid people want my attention? You're going to have the ruffles of life. But if you've experienced Jesus hanging on the cross and rather than thinking of him and his feelings and his problems, he's looking at his mom. He's looking at John. He's more interested in their relationships. Would you all right now just take a second and look around at somebody else? Maybe somebody you've never noticed before. Just take a second, if you're willing, just look around. Look at somebody straight, straight in the face, like I'm looking at Jackson right now. This is what the church is for. This is why we're here. We have been looked upon by Jesus, and we can take the time to look into the eyes. And we can switch relationships. When I met Virginia, she was a very stately, elderly senior living in Sun City. This is like right now my grandma. I look at Joyce like my grandma, Fred like my grandpa. I look at Freddie, he's like an older brother. We have to start seeing each other as family. If you're younger than me, I think of you as my children. This is how things start to place. Remember, John was not related to Mary, and yet it says he took her to his home for the rest of his life. Oh, I love this beautiful picture. Okay, so he says, look, this is your mom. Look, this is your son. But then he says something that was very honest about his experience. The second thing, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. Look at verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. The living water is thirsty. Many of you know I struggled a week ago to run a marathon with Samuel. Boy, was I thirsty. Every two miles, I'm just, oh my goodness, I couldn't get enough of it. About mile 25, I'll never forget, I'm so thirsty. And this lady has this little cup. It was like a communion cup. And I thought, what are you so chintzy for? Man, I paid money for this marathon. But I grabbed that little cup and I thought, this was, the, this was my favorite lady because I had to get the last couple of miles and it was this little dinky cup, but I was thirsty. We know thirst. Jesus is hanging there and he's saying, I am thirsty. Psalm 62, one says, my soul thirsts for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. See, thirst in scripture is a spiritual thing. When you're far from God, you get thirsty. And Jesus was suffering the wrath of his father. Do you agree that there's a profound thirst in our city? What do I mean? People want to know what life is all about. They want to know if anything matters. Verse 29, they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch. They held it to his mouth. That's interesting. What branch did the Jews use back in the Exodus story to smear blood on the Passover, from the Passover lamb over their doors? It was a hyssop branch. See, the angel of destruction in that story would kill the firstborn. Here is Jesus. I am thirsty. Hyssop branch goes up. You have the wood. 
He is the only Son of God. Why did he die? Because he will die so that we will live. I love what John 6 says about Jesus. Jesus says, if you believe in me, you'll never thirst. That is good news. But you know, if you don't believe, you will have an eternal existential thirst. We don't want that for you here. Okay, the hourglass of Jesus' life, it's draining away. Just before the last grain drops, he says one more thing. It always is important to hear. It is finished. Verse 30. Jesus received a sour wine. He said, it's finished. What do these words mean? They don't mean this. Oh, I'm glad this is over. It's not, I'm finished. It's a single word. If you, if you were to hear him say it, I've done it, is what he says. Back then, if you had a long mortgage and you spent your whole life and you finally paid it off, we have historical records from the first century where it would say this. It would say, paid in full to Telestai once you were done paying off the debt. Oh, a lot of us would love to get that right now, wouldn't we? <laughs> it's done. It's paid in full. If you can hear this today, please walk out with it. There is nothing you must do to make God love you more. There's nothing you could do to make God love you less. But here's the picture of most of our friends and neighbors. They don't know that it's been finished on the cross. And they're trying to figure out how in their life they will be enough. The bestseller, one of them right now, out deals with our teenage kids. How's that? Well, Never Enough is a book that just came out by Jennifer Wallace. She writes about achievement culture. It's becoming toxic, and she's noticing that it's really doing a lot of damage with our high school students. High school students are anxious, depressed, self-harm, substance abuse. She's saying why. She studies hard and says there's three groups of teens that are at risk. Children of incarcerated parents, children in foster care, and surprising, she had no idea she'd find this out, children in high-achieving high schools in affluent suburbs in America. Let me slow down and say that again. These are children that are harming themselves, using substances, and they are living in affluent suburbs. Now, not all of us here are affluent, but I would argue that our mission field has children that are taught to have confidence in their own capacity. And when Jesus said, it is finished, this could be the best news. All she could say at the end of her book was, we have to somehow figure out how to tell these kids they matter. Because see, when you perform well, and then you go to a college that performs well, and then you want to perform well in your job, there's never an end point. But when Jesus said, it is finished, this is good news. Remember, it's Friday afternoon. It's the end of the sixth workday. Isn't it interesting that Sabbath is closing in and just in the nick of time, he says those words, the work is done. It is finished. Let's say you just want to jump into another religion. Follow Buddha. His last words to his followers were, strive without ceasing. Jesus says to us, I have done all the striving. The work is done. 
And because Jesus, but Jesus, many of us do this. You started the work. I'll finish it by being really good. Be careful. I sometimes like to ask someone who claims to be a Christian this question. Are you a Christian? And if they say to me, I'm trying, I got a real question going on there. Let me slow down for all of us here because there's some of you in here that may not be Christians. If I say to you, are you a Christian? And you go, I'm trying. No. Trusting in his finished work is the only way to be a Christian. Receive it as a free gift. Now, Jesus is on that cross. And verse 30 says, he bowed his head, which means he is fully with it. He's getting that last saying out. He's finishing the work of saving sinners. He bows his head. He gives up his spirit. Death did not come looking for Jesus that day. Jesus ran after death, trampled death, and he then gave up his spirit. He was not a victim that day. Let's end very shortly with some secrets. Secrets, something hidden from view. These two guys come out of nowhere, right? Uh, Joseph, verse 38, Joseph of Arimathea, wherever that is, he was a disciple of Jesus. But secretly, for fear of the Jews, he asks Pilate that he might take the body away. And Jesus and Pilate give him permission. This may sound so strange to you and like, what's the big deal? But when a a criminal was up on a cross and died, listen, they left it up there. Like the birds would come and just, it was bad. It was a shameful thing. It was a big deal that this body had a place to go. I thought it was so strange this week. One of my biggest problems this week on Tuesday is I get this call. We had a person die on my floor. And I get this call, hey, nobody's claiming the body. And I thought, how sad. Like this man that we had taken care of, nobody claimed the body. We're trying to call every number we've got. If, by the way, within 10 days, if no one claims the body at a hospital, the state takes it over. So finally, day eight, we get a call, and it was a son who had just lost touch with dad. And he says, Howard, that's my dad's body. I will come to the morgue, and we'll have a funeral service, get my dad's body. See, this son and his father... Something with their relationship made it that they'd really lost touch. But as our Savior died, Joseph, who happened to have a tomb, comes out of his secret fear and confidently says, I am no longer going to be a secret disciple. I will take that body and I will put that body into my tomb. And then Nicodemus, we met him in chapter 3. He had come to Jesus by night. He's this secretive guy. But they put this wrap of spice. Why spice? The smell of death back then would have been terrible. One of the things I did when I was jogging for the marathon is I'd run on the road. And when you run by roadkill, it is not fun. It lingers. In that culture, they didn't do cremation. They'd put your body into a, a tomb and it would smell. Nicodemus shows up, wraps in this expensive aloe and myrrh. And here's secret of secrets again. Y'all know in Psalm 45 of the prediction of a king. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your robes are all fragrant with what? Myrrh and aloes. Secret of secrets, this king joked at was the king. And boy, did he smell good. The smell of death was covered. You know, all of us deserve eternal death. 
But when we are in Christ, we smell good. We smell like life. I end today just with a question for all of you. Do you believe these signs? Do you? The cross, the sign of a condemned criminal dying for you to be free of accusation, if you believe that you have life, do you believe that the skull, there is life? The scriptures, they tell us that there is life. Is he your king? Do you believe these sayings? Do you believe you're part of his family? Do you believe the work is finished? Are you still a secret disciple? I end with a story that I used to kind of encourage me for my marathon. Many of you may know of John Stephen Aquari of Tanzania. Why do I tell this story? Because I love what he says at the end of his marathon. It was the 1968 marathon. It was in Mexico. It was hot. He got cramps. He fell down during the race. He dislocated his knee. Everybody thought he wouldn't continue, and he hobbled on. And he hurt his shoulder, and he hit his face. He hobbles across the finish line last. And they say to him, why did you do this? And he said, my country didn't send me 5,000 miles to start a race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish it. Jesus died to finish sin, death. And the question for all of us today is, are we ready to start this new life? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for John. I know that in this story, this was so much to cover. Uh, We could have taken weeks and weeks and weeks, but Lord, we heard things from the cross. We saw things, and we still have questions. John knew that this was so that we could believe the truth. We're going to need the help of your Holy Spirit to believe that our thirst is actually quenched by your love. Lord, I pray for our high schoolers. Our high schoolers think that if their own capacity will take them the distance, oh Lord, that's a dead-end street. Help us to be a church that lets people know that the work has been done, all is free. In Christ's name we pray, amen.